reading to you from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 31 to 47. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Amen. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak, I speak what I have seen my father with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If you were the father, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's what Brian read to us from the book of Ephesians, um, and it calls forth our minds that our struggle in this world is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. This Sunday is our third Sunday in this, this series on sort of what does it mean to fight or to struggle with or to engage with what are classically known as the three enemies of the Christian soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, um, and how those distort and pull us away. The first Sunday we looked at sort of, um, sort of a broader overview and some of the dysfunctions that I think are um, perhaps particular to our age, although there is nothing new under the sun, but... Uh, um, some of the things that might pull us away, and some of those will come up again today. And then uh, last Sunday, we uh, participated in the way in which we are an enlisted into the struggle in the baptism of Derek. 
that all of us through our baptisms have joined in this struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That we've been enlisted in this battle. And this is um, Paul's imagery, and we saw it in Mark 2, and um, certainly you see it with real forces, perhaps in in the Old Testament, uh, but also spiritual forces, is this idea is which that is there is good and truth in the world. There is that which seeks to deform it uh, um, and uh, destroy it and to make it uh, uh, frustrate its attempts in, in being that. Um, and so this Sunday, we are going to talk about the devil, which is not my native territory. Um, I think in some ways, for most of us, it isn't this way. As we as modern people live in a more flat universe. Um, the idea of what, what Paul said about rulers and authorities. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament mind, in the early New Testament mind, the idea might be that, that Rome is, has Caesar, but behind Caesar is, is sort of a different thing, a demon or something like that. that and you see this throughout the Old Testament more clearly. The New Testament, um, I think because of the pronounced strength of the victory of Jesus Christ, and this is one of the most important things to, I think, remember when we talk about the devil, because of the pronounced strength of the victory of Jesus Christ, adopts more of this, um, and we, in, we intuit this, I think, over time, this sort of radically sort of monotheistic lens that the other gods don't exist. Now, you'll get passages like where Paul says uh, about going into temples where he says you might be eating in the midst of a demon, um, and these sort of are references to what we see in the Old Testament. But they're, the notion that most of us have 2,000 years from, from the time the New Testament was written is we live in these flat sort of universes. And so my analogy for this, and this is not going to work because this is for a kid, um, not that the analogy is, but my my instrument for doing it, is, is that we, myself included, live in sort of this block way, right? I live seeing the world in, in sort of uh, what can be judged, what can be tested over and over again, what is verified by the scientific method. Um, it would be nice to, to think that there's some other forces of distortion out there, but all of us have to just buckle down and get stronger and, and claim it as our own. This is why um, so often I think when we talk about sin and darkness in, in sort of our contemporary world is it's normally like you need to get help, and by help we mean a therapist, um, and by help we mean uh, uh, disciplining yourself, but seldom do we think you need an exorcism, which I think... Um, would not make a lot of friends, but also would um, present its own challenges in the world. So this is, I think, the world we live in, and this is, as many of you know, you turn on the light, and that, uh, see, I, I knew it wasn't going to work. Uh, that's the, uh, if you're familiar with it, it's the cross of San Damiano, I think, the one that St. Francis saw um, when Jesus spoke to him, go repair my church. And so what the world really is, and perhaps uh, for us, the best we can reclaim is to begin to sort of see the contours of what used to be, because truth resides there. That if we think that the world is just flat and it doesn't have any of these sort of um, principalities and powers and evil distortions to it, we end up living in this sort of bland box way. Now here's the actual image, um, and, and this I think is the fullness of what, we, what God might see in our human relations. And so this is not the cross, this is not the, the actual image. What I'm saying is that God or Jesus, when he sees the world, 
And us, when we're full of the Spirit, I think at times, if you trace the contours of what full of the Spirit means in the New Testament, it means people are actively seeing what's going on in its distortions and its destructions and the way in which the world is being pulled apart and the way in which the world is being redeemed and repaired and put back together as well. And so, unfortunately, by virtue of birth and social location, I think in Africa um, and other places, you would have more of that three-dimensional or colorful way of seeing the world filled in. But I think most of us in America end up with just sort of this block that attempts to explain everything. But the Christian way of seeing, the Christian way of having a lens for the world is much grander than that. Um, It's much more colorful and textured and gives reason to it. Now, I do think that that we face this temptation that C.S. Lewis talks about on the back of the bulletin, if you want to read this quote, but there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excess and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and, and hail a materialist, somebody who thinks in this way, or a magician, somebody who sees demon everywhere with the same delight. And so as we try to reclaim it some today, I think there's this temptation to see uh, a devil under every bush, to see a devil involved in everything, to see the devil in, in things that might be, in, and we are moving towards two other <laughs> definitions of what we're struggling with, the flesh and the world. Um, and so not everything is, is even classically under the devil's heirs. But, but I think for, for us, it's, it's to um, expand our souls, to see and believe in this way. Um, I think, I forget who it was this week who pointed out that, that you may not be leaving the devil, but Jesus did. Um, and Jesus contended with him. Um, to have our souls expanded in that way, but to not fall to the, to the magician's air, to just see the demonic under everything. Now, I'm sure some people here have had experiences with that darkness and with that feeling and with that dread. Um, uh, for me, one of the clearest spots that this happened was, that was so antithetical. I remember going to the, what's that festival in Crested Butte where they worship some pagan god, Veritas or whatever? Anyways, that was dark, I thought, but that would seem like, okay, well, of course that feels dark because they're literally worshiping a pagan god. Um, uh, But this other time, it was a church um, that had bad design is what I felt like, and it was um, dark on the inside, and I was working for a church plant in Durango, and we would go to this church when we couldn't meet at the rec center. We rented the rec center, and there were holidays in which the rec center was closed, and so we'd go to this church, and we would worship in their space, and all of us were like, this place needs an exorcism. Now, we were, I was working for the Southern Baptists at the time. They didn't believe that. Um, but we were like, there's some vibe to this place that just feels dark. Something resides here. And, and we would, uh, there was a charismatic pastor in town. Again, I was young and dumb. We'd be like, hey, Sean, you need to come down there and do whatever you do to, to fix this for us. As if with the power of Jesus, we couldn't do it ourselves. Um, I think maybe we needed somebody who believed in that type of thing. Maybe that's what we were looking for. Um, point being is, is later, and I don't want to get into the details about it, but later it, it came out um, while we were still there that the pastor was involved in the type of stuff that is just incredibly dark, and he stored all of it in his office, which was behind the sanctuary. Um, and it's, it's those times where you think, maybe there's something more to this than I realize. It's one thing to go to the Veritas Festival and 
see drunk college kids parading around pretending to be worshiping some ancient demon in whatever form that can take. But it's another thing when you start to see these things in other places of distortion and destruction. Um, and then to have that come to light, I think that is one of those places, and I'm sure, like I said, we each probably have stories like this that shook me to say, this spiritual realm might be more real than I think it is. And the better thing I'd like to do is just forget about it and go back to my blocked existence than, than to sort of live into that space. Just as a quick review, last week, one of the ways in which I've tried to talk about um, uh, the, mis- the, the, the way in which our age thinks about faith is this term moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, this is the creed of moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, I'll just go over it real fast. Uh, a God who exists and ordered the world and watches over human life. Um, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to feel happy and good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except for when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven. Lauren's laughing because both as a chaplain and as a pastor, I think you see that quite critically enough. Um, And it's, what's the old C.S. Lewis line, Lauren? Do you remember it about um, God whispers to us in our good times, but in pain, it's a megaphone. He shouts, it's a megaphone to our souls. So it's it's not... um, to have sympathy with those people who find when they're in actual problems, which is Lauren's job, um, uh, to do, uh, because it's those times we begin to ask those questions to see in that way. But anyways, this is, this is sort of the creed of the age. The people who put this study together found that this creed resides in the church as much as it resides in young people, and that this is sort of the ways in which we go about faith. One of the ways, as I was thinking about it this week, there's a line I love from Pope Benedict that says Mary, uh, and for Mar- Mary, the mother of God, which she is called by scripture, Mary, the mother of God, finds no place in most theologies um, because most theologies in faith are based on an abstraction, and an abstraction doesn't need a mother. Most faith and theologies are based on an abstraction, and an abstraction doesn't need a mother. I would amend that for today. I use that when we talk about Mary some, but to say most demons and this idea of conflict in our faith in looking at this creed doesn't find a place in most of our faith in theology because it's based off of an abstraction like this. But abstraction doesn't need an enemy. It doesn't need a force that's opposed to it. And so you look at this creed, which again resides here as much as it resides anywhere else, is there's nothing that's really distorting or pulling away. There's no demons here. There's no room for darkness and that which might be brewing underneath the surface. This is just uh, um, perhaps the sin of niceness for American Christianity. It's, it's we're not engaged in a real struggle. There's no sense of battle in this. There's no sense of, of contending with the world as it is, trying to um, restore it and to, and to be an object that's both holy and good. And I think that's part of, part of one of the, the main um, persuasions of, of sort of the f- early parts of this sermon series is we all know it's hard to be holy and good, to practice being a non-anxious presence in the world, 
to lift our eyes and gaze, to see people in their humanity and not to see them as, as things to consume along the way, to, to, um, to respond in kindness when we're driving on 82. <laughs> um, you know, we all know that this is part of the challenge. And we can say it's because I don't have enough of just um, therapy or Zen or whatever else I need in my life. Or we can begin to see that there are active forces that are bent on tearing us away from the life that God has called us to and towards. And when we begin to name that that's the way it is, we begin to see the world in color in a different way. And again, it's not just devils. We're still going to hit the flesh in this uh, there's a, there's a, this is a pastor's joke, but there's like a, signs, signs are in a progressive church bingo card. They quote from Mary Oliver, and I've never done it until this Sunday. Um, but I don't think this is the one they use. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's the one, Instructions for Living. Does anybody know that poem? Uh, pay attention, stay awake. Yeah, that would be the one that you'd be more likely to hear. Um, anyways, Mary Oliver today for us says, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And think about that for a second. What we attend to is the beginning of our devotion towards it. Most of us, and, and this, is, this I paired with this next slide, which I used two weeks ago, but this is, this is 18 to 15 to 23-year-old smartphone usage, but, but point being is that's uh, uh, 2,767 hours a, a year um, for an average 15 to 23-year-old. We might fare a little bit better, but point being is attention is the beginning of devotion. Now, for a different generation, it would be the talking lamp, which would be the uh, television. I don't know if you know this, but some of the news networks found out that they had to make their logos move because it was starting to burn into television screens because they never changed the channel and it was on all the time. So the, the fact that the CNN or the Fox News logo moves now is because they just assume a certain class of people just have it on all the time in the background. Um, you could, you know, it's easy to pick on smartphones for younger people, but there's different things. But to say that these habits of attention are the beginning of our devotions. It's a deep challenge for me, and I'm sure it is for some of you to say, to honestly assess then, what am I devoted to if according to my cell phone app I spend 30 minutes a day on Instagram? Um, what am I devoted to if, if uh, this is, um, I'm, I can't be the only one who this has happened to. It's never happened to me, I mean. Um, uh, the, uh, the phantom vibrations in your leg, and it, and it causes this idea of which, oh, I need to check my phone. And you're like, wait, I don't even have my phone on me. Um, what we attend to is the beginning of our devotion. And then this is where I think principalities and powers and such have, have been expanded. Um, Jaco Luul and uh, William Stringfellow, two people in the last century who did a lot with this, but there's others too, who to say that, that back in, in, in ancient times, you would walk by the literal temple to the other god. You would walk by these um, 
other, and James K. Smith calls these liturgies. You would walk by the liturgy of sort of, of, of Dina or the, of the local theater or something like that. You would walk by these things and you would see them and then choose not to participate them, in them or at least walk away from them. James K. Smith says that most of us, our cultural liturgy today is the liturgy of the mall. Um, and we don't see it as a temple and so it's not a real threat to us. The reason why I brought up Alu and Stringfield is, is Stringfellow is that they began to say that these things are more like temples than we realize. These liturgies are more like those things in which in past ages had formal deities behind them or at least named, but today we don't name them as such, so all good. Um, when in fact, if, if you let yourself, and again, going back to the Roosevelt's tracing sheet. Um, if you let yourself be expanded in some of those ways and ask yourself, what's going on as you participate in the liturgies of other places, as you go into consumption or to this? I mean, one of the ones, and this one is near and dear to my own soul, is, is the sports have their own liturgies to them. Um, from when you stand and when you sit and when you cheer. Um, and this is the, the classic understanding of this isn't all demons either. There's, there's a notion in which some of the principalities and powers get redeemed in the end. Um, those which attach to the devil are cast into the fiery pit with the others, but, but they're not all evil. But there's at least, at least if you grow an awareness of what liturgies am I participating in, then you're at least consenting to your attention being given into that devotion, right? You're at least going along that road. Um, uh, and so that's sort of uh, where we start at. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. So we walk into this, um, the world, the flesh, and the devil sort of battle, and we're starting with the devil today. Um, Emil Brunner, um, somebody from the last century, uh, he um, German 1950s intellectual theologians weren't supposed to believe in Satan. Um, uh, he, but Emil Brunner had lived through, through um, that period of Germany uh, titled Nazism. And what he had, had said when he was speaking at Princeton, uh, he gave a sermon or a, a talk on the devil. And the students asked him, they said, you know, you talk about the devil like you actually believe in him. What's going on? Um, and he said, oh, I believe in the devil because I've seen him. Um, that he had seen the destruction of that age. Um, he had seen how it had happened in that way. And, and, and I say this line often, it's from Carl Jung, but the idea that ideas don't have people, or uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Um, that, that oftentimes when we look at what society, uh, what was the phrase that was popular like um, two months ago? The world changes so fast. Mass formation psychosis, was that what it was? But oftentimes when we see these things, it doesn't matter. Is that what it was? I don't know. Brian, look it up for me. Uh, my last church, a guy used to fact check me while I was preaching, which was helpful. Um, wasn't always helpful, but... Um, uh, mass formation psychosis. But what happens there is there's areas in which... Um, uh, in human history, um, in the easiest ones to remember are the most graphic, whether it be uh, the situation that happened in Rwanda in the 90s, Nazi Germany, um, uh, the Salem witch trials, in which there seems to be something that everybody has the same idea at the same time, and it's not a good idea. 
and yet they all go through with it. And then when they're on the other side, they all seem to have this idea of what did we do? How did we get to that dark of a spot? And in the, in the non-lit version of that, we just go, it just must be a thousand million people making the same wrong decision one day when they wake up in the morning. When in fact, I think it might be wiser for us to say, what spirit was behind gathering and creating those lies in that way to create that situation and that destruction? What words were fed into that situation? What lies and distortions were given into that place? Uh, Agravarius, um, which I totally mispronounced, but none of you know his name, third century monk undertook sort of writing about battles with demons. He wrote a little handbook with battles with demons. Um, and he called them thought patterns in his ancient way. It's these thought patterns that people became and developed into, these lies in which they began to be formed into. And I think we, we see that in our own lives, that we become engrafted into these lies and into these thought patterns, which we need to be rescued from, which brings to mind that I do need to move faster because if you spend all the time on, here's the bad news, the devil, and I don't tell you anything to do about it, I have failed. Um, and this sermon series probably should be longer, so I could do one on what it is and one on how to fight it, but here's where we are. By devil, and this came from somebody else, we identify a real personal enemy, a fallen angel, father of lies, who with his fellow demons of hell labors in resentless malice to twist us away from salvation. This is one definition of the devil. And I think one of the hard parts with the devil or anything sort of biblically speaking is we have two options. We have a thousand, but let's just say I'm going to reduce them all to two for simplicity's sake. One is I can ask what each individual text says about it, and if it doesn't line up with another one, just sort of let it go. That's sort of my de facto mode. There's another firm, which is sort of very heightened biblical theology that says, there's lots of things said about the devil in scripture. Let's iron them all out so that they're flat and none of them contradict each other, which creates sometimes its own problems. You know, what do you, what do, you do with uh, the court scene in, in Job's gospel where the accuser seems to show up there? Well, yeah, how does he have access to heavenly court, this, that, and the other? Um, and so you have to, everybody pulls these together in some ways. Some people let more dissonance stand as they create a full biblical theology of what demons are, and some people let, uh, want no dissonance to stand, so it all has to be evened out. So what's being referred to in, I think, Isaiah about the fallen angel is obviously about the devil, um, and then read in its context, it's like, not obviously so, but possibly so. And so um, my, my way of walking through this today is just to sort of say that there is this massive movement within the Bible that suggests or names that there is a force that's out there to twist us away from our salvation and the goodness in which God has proclaimed over us. Now, this comes from the book in which uh, I'm using somewhat as a guide for this by John Mark Comer. Um, it, but he sort of talks about how deceptive ideas begin with the devil, disordered desires that's in the flesh, and then we end up with a sinful society which then equals into the world. And so each of these sort of um, moves in a movement sort of way. Um, I think that they're far more intertwined than John Mark, I mean, gives them. But, but this is a helpful way to think about we get these deceptive ideas from the devil. It creates disordered desires within us. And then we end up uh, in a sinful and broken world. And so that they sort of build in this way. I think part of the reason why 
we like that as Christians is because uh, it fits some linear narrative. Uh, the serpent in Genesis is thus the beginning, and how we got to where we are is based on, on, on that moment. Um, I think Scripture pays to be reread, and it becomes more um, uh, polyphonic in time, more, um, more like an orchestra. Is that right, Carla? Yeah. It's a, it, and so when you do that, it becomes more um, overlapping in its themes. You, you, you can't just pinpoint it to one thing. Um, and I think that's God protecting us from our own arrogance in a lot of ways, and that it becomes we're still veiled from some of these truths because if we knew them, we would take it out of hand as we're not prone to overreaction. You know, we're very calm and patient creatures he's, he's made. Um, uh, but, but we'll go to Genesis 3 just for a moment. Um, now, I'm going to go through three texts, and I'm going to try to do it fast. Um, this is uh, Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any true uh, tree in the garden? When we're faced with this sort of call towards lies, the thing I, I think this scene instructs us in is that the woman was alone in the garden. Um, there's a, an acronym I liked, and we'll see it in the next scene too, um, bored, lonely, angry, tired, stressed. That doesn't spell blast. There is a way it spells blast. Bored, lonely, angered, stressed, tired, blast. Um, that people who struggle with addictions or patterns of thought or, or lies and stuff like that, it's most likely to creep up when you are bored, lonely, angry, tired, or stressed. Stressed, tired, blast. Um, uh, and, that, and, and so what we find in this earliest scene is that she's alone. Um, and what happens is, is the devil, and I think it's fair to say that as we read scripture that we begin to see in this crafty of all the animals, the serpent, the devil, it begins with, did God really say? There's this challenge to sort of then re-narrate the world. Did God narrate the world in a way that's truthful and good and beautiful? Or is he holding out on you? Is he leading to some, uh, holding the truth from you? Did God really say that? Uh, And it turns out that that God didn't say that. But that's where it starts. Now, in our world where we live by so many lies and we're bombarded by it all the time, that did God really say did the boundaries that create the ordered garden rather than the disordered world, are they good for us or are they meant to be crossed and trespassed in the modern world nonstop? Um, were these things good for us or are they just being held out from us? And what the serpent says to her in the end is that you will not certainly not die um, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, God has distorted, and what God is doing is protecting his turf, is what, what Satan says. And so it's, it's for you to rightfully decide who is God and how God means to order the world. And this becomes our challenge when we think about how the devil works. See, now the story I told about that church is the way in which we often looked for the devil to be active in the world. 
And it's not to say that the devil and these demons aren't active in that way. But the lies that come into our lives and pull us away from this truth. We don't think of that as, when we, when we want to talk about demonic activity, we think exorcist. Not the advertisement that suggested to me that what I have is my own and I can use it to whatever ends I want. Or the book that's suggesting to me that, that my true autonomy is found in throwing away all my other responsibilities to people and then going on the road. I don't know, that's a Kerouac book on the road. Updike wrote what he thought it would really be like in a book called Rabbit Run, and the guy only makes it to like the next town um, and ends up depressed and angry, and there's four books on it. But, uh, uh, you know, we, we buy into like, hey, it'd be nice to be on the road, and I love Updike's thing. is like he makes it a town over and he finds a way to ruin his life. Um, but we buy into those things. Did God really say it was good for me to reside with these limits and in this place? That's the type of demonic activity we might want to open ourselves to considering more. Shelley read to us from John's Gospel. I uh, don't think I... Maybe I do have a slide for that. Yes, if... Um, Jesus, when he finished uh, how to make friends and influence people, decided to go out with, oh, you have a father, he's the devil. Um, he missed that book, I guess. Um, but this is a, a, an important scene in John's gospel. Now, I've been meaning to say world, flesh, and devil. Devil is an overarching stream in most of scripture. World is one that takes place predominantly in John's gospel, and flesh uh, seems to be one of Paul's primary illustrations. So we'll, uh, and they both have, world and flesh have Old Testament analogs, but they're not read the same way. Um, so when you think about, if you were doing a word search, you would see more flesh in Paul, more world in John as, as these sort of enemies. But this is John sort of also bringing up the devil as well. Um, and what he says is, is that he is the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That Jesus, as he speaks to the religious authorities of the time, sees how they've made themselves captive to lies. They've heard lies. Lies become the ways in which they sort of are engaged in the world. And it's this lot, lot, um, lies that keeps them from being free. This is what Shelley's reading started with. If, if Christ has made you free, um, you begin to have lies. And one of the things that uh, struck me as, as Shelley was reading it is that these lies create amnesia in us. We have never been slaves. We're Abraham's children. The quintessential story of your people is called the Exodus, in which you move from slavery to freedom. That's what's being one of these people is. And it's, it's funny, but amnesia about who you are is one of the ways that lies creeps into the world. Derek, we baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But you're not good enough. You're not kind enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not good-looking enough. We begin to doubt what God has said is true about us and believe the lies that creep up in that place. And we forget our own story. And, and Christ reminds them not only that you were freed from, he doesn't even remind them about the Exodus, but that if you participate in f 
patterns of sin, you are making yourself a slave. And it's that freedom that Christ comes to bring us from that moment. The last one, this is another quintessential one, and I know this is small, is uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Going back to Genesis, Eve is alone in a garden surrounded by everything she can eat. Christ is out in a desert 40 years without food and water, uh, and this is where his temptation comes. And you can read these temptations, if you'd like, as each offering him something of the world, something of the flesh, and something of the devil as well. But he uses the same trick to some degree, is that he begins to um, uh, question his identity. If you really are, if you really are, if you really are. And what I think is also important for us to remember is that Christ responds out of Scripture. That's going to go into the application in a moment. But it's important for us to remember that there is a time in which the devil quotes Scripture to Christ. So often, the one thing that we take away from this passage is if you memorize Scripture, you'll be able to do battle with the devil in the wilderness. But what Christ grew in was wisdom. What Christ grew in is his identity as that one. What Christ grew in is in knowing God. And so that when Scripture comes distorted from the, other, the liar's mouth, he notices it as such as a lie. And this is a real challenge for us, because if something's coded in Scripture today in our culture, I think there's a bit of a, must be good. Uh, how could it be bad? Um, the devil quotes Scripture to Christ when he tests him in the wilderness. Um, and so in this scene, we see how Christ is too alone and tired, and yet he is the, the faithful one who goes through these temptations for us so that we may be restored as well. And part of it, it, the devil leaves him in one of the Gospels and comes back, and it's, it's the devil in, in classic um, Christian theology, the earliest church, that's defeated at the cross. Um, that, that This ransom theory of atonement that, that the devil had thought he had had humanity ransomed, but by Christ, by pain in his blood, ransoms the people back for God. And now they belong to God again. Um, and so this, this battle here in the wilderness points to us as Christ is faithful here and he's faithful in going to the cross. Um, so we, I guess the point so far is, have been drafted into a battle here. Um, we've been drafted into this battle. We don't see it. In a lot of ways, the modern world creates within us the dial that exists. And yet it's for us to open our eyes to best as we can and begin to see in color again. Which brings us to how we might combat Scripture. Um, this is one of my favorite images. I believe it's called Old Woman Reading the Bible, which he spent a lot of time on that one. Um, uh, but it's a beautiful image in the way in which this woman has opened Scripture and it illuminates before her. For us to combat and to deal with the lies of the world, it is first for us to open this and read this text before our eyes. And you'll notice the way in which it illuminates her face and the way in which um, she is sort of uh, received into the text. There's a way in which I sometimes think, as I look at this image, that the text is reading her as much as she is reading the text. Um, and so she is finding herself in this pattern of scripture. And you would imagine, too, that it's a time of prayer as well, that the way in which she has built this into her life is through this time of scripture and prayer. 
Another way we can fight this battle is to name the lies that distort us. John Mark, who wrote that book, it's not included in that book for good reason, wrote his own book of all the lies he believes about himself and then paired them with scriptures that proclaim otherwise about him. That as he went through his thought inventory of the day, he would pick up that which was lies to him, he would write them down, and then he would go back to his Bible and write truths that combated those lies within them. The last one, um, and I think this is an important one, comes out of early church history. Um, And this is uh, learning to cross yourself. Uh, I'll read this. This is from the calisthenics version of uh, what the early church was like. And I would say that this comes from a book by um, Alan Kreider, who's a Mennonite. So this is not a Catholic practice. Um, He's proclaiming what the early church did and how it helped them. Yes. Yeah, you can take that. Um, catechumens learned to be uh, Christian, learning to do hibachi, what the Christians did least, not the least, with their bodies. We saw that the habits of the Christian included reflexive actions such as standing when praying, replenishing stocks of food and clothing, and receiving visitors hospitably. The, the habits also include bodily cra- practices that the Christians exercise many times a day as in the course of their lives, especially making the sign of the cross. As Tertullian put it, we make the sign of the cross on our foreheads at every turn at our going or our coming out of the cross uh, on the, of the house and all the ordinary actions of daily life. The pagans saw Christians do this, mocked it, and could not view it as and could view it as suspicious activity. But Christians believed that it had protective power of a spiritual breastplate. The apprentice Christian needed to learn how to make the sign of the cross, when to make it, when to be seen making it, and when to do it invisibly. The apostolic tradition, another early church document, in a passage clearly directed to catechumens, those learning the faith, urges them to make a practice of signing the foreheads and the eyes with the cross, imitating those who are more experienced than they are. So here's an image of it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This practice, I think, is worth reclaiming because what it does is it marks for us physically in our bodies who we are with God, and it makes that space in our, our lives for that. And this idea that it's a Catholic practice, again, precedes the Catholic Church by a long time. There is no Catholic Church when this period that Kreider is reckoning about. But I think what it does is it, it is a tangible bodily reminder of what we do. Uh, the devils in the screw tape letter, going back to C.S. Lewis, argue that the best thing you can do to make the modern man forget that he is at war with, with devils is make him forget that what he does with his body matters at all. Don't let him kneel in prayer. Don't let him make the sign of the cross. Let him think that as he's sitting in the car, he's doing something as spiritual as everything else. And what the devils are trying to do there in, in the screw tape letters is keep you blind to where you sit and how you act and who you interact with is true of the lies that you will confront and how we reach distortions in our lives. So after church, you can accuse me of being a closet Catholic all over again. Let's end with uh, the prayer that we prayed in Derek's baptism. I'll pray it, and then I'll say a short prayer. Let us receive the sign of a cross as a token of our new life in Christ, in which you shall be saved, which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant all the days of your life. 
God, we invite you into this space to open our eyes to see the challenges we confront in the world, that there is a father of lies out there, that he works with an army of demons to drag down the Christian, to keep us blind to the reality, to make sure that we forget that it's there. Um, We ask that through Christ and through your spirit that you would open our eyes to contend in this world for your truth and for your goodness and your beauty so that we might be a people of your peace, witnessing to your kingdom, which reconciles us all. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.